0: And welcome to New Books and Fantasy. I am your host, A.E. Lanier. Today, I will be speaking with Wole Tulabe about his debut novel, Shigeti and the Brass Head of Abulafon. The novel follows Shigeti, a former nightmare god, and his partner, the succubus Noma, as they attempt to carve a life independent from the control of spirit corporations. The story spans continents and decades, but centers on a heist to steal back an artifact from the British Museum. Wole Tulabe is an engineer, writer, and editor from Nigeria. His short fiction has appeared in a wide variety of places, including Lightspeed and Clark's World, and he's been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and Nomo Awards. Shigety is his first novel, and his short fiction collection, Convergence Problems, is forthcoming from DAW this February. He is here with us now. Hi, Willie. It's great to have you.
1: Hello, It's uh, awesome to be here. Thank you.
0: Could you start by just telling us a little bit about this book and sort of how you got interested in it?
1: oh yeah so um i i usually say the book was kind of the convergence of three separate ideas that i had Um, the first two ideas about the characters and the third basically the plot so the character of shigidi comes from my own personal interests in mythology Um, mythologies from around the world i've been reading Um, summaries of mythology, even since I was a child, since I was six, seven, you know, Egyptian, Hindu, Norse, Greek, um, even traditional African mythologies as well, especially Yoruba, which is the ethnic group I'm from. And I've always been fascinated by the ideas of pantheons and gods and how much they reflect us, right? Um, Because in a sense, they come from us, right? We are the ones that creates them as placeholders for these greater forces that we're trying to understand. So I've always been fascinated with that process. And then I was going through some older documents, um, some books from the late 1900s on Yoruba mythology. And I came across mention of Shigidi. Now Shigidi is still used in modern Yoruba culture Um, But it's more of a used as a general term for like an idol that you put in your house. And it basically, it's something you pray to, to protect you and things like that. Um, But in older references, Shigidi is referred to directly as the god of nightmares. And he's worshipped by creating an idol that you put in your house. And it's usually the small, ugly clay statue or wooden statue. And the idea being, it would either catch nightmares that your enemies have sent to you so you can sleep peacefully. Or you could pray to it to send nightmares to your enemies if you wanted to. And I just remember thinking this must be the worst job in the world of all the of all the god powers to have. Your entire job description is send and give people nightmares and maybe kill them in their sleep. Um, so I kept thinking, what must what must it be like to to be one of those? One of those gods and then thinking of it as a job kind of led to this framing of a corporate entity what if the pantheon of gods operated like a modern corporation um how would Shigidi fit into the company in that kind of position that would that would not be as respected as say you know god of disease or god of lightning and thunder so that's where the framing of Shigidi's character came from the second um inspiration for the book was the character of Norma. So Norma is kind of, I started writing stories. The first story I wrote about Norma as a character was, I think, in 2015. And it was just this short vignette about a man who goes to a hotel, buys a drink, sees this um, tempting, beautiful woman, tries to woo her, not realizing that she's actually tricking him. And then they go upstairs to his hotel room and she has sex with him and steals his soul and turns out she's a succubus. Um, And I wasn't sure exactly where those stories were coming from, but thinking about it now, I realized that the character of Noma kind of came to my head from a lot of Christian messaging I had when I was growing up. Um, Very moralistic, paternalistic views of the role of women in society, especially dangerous women, right? Because I grew up in a very Christian household and Evangelical Christianity in Nigeria specifically, there was, especially in the 90s, there was a lot of heavy messaging about men being careful about women tempting them, right? And even as a teenager, it seemed obsessively wrong to me. Like, why are we focusing so much on women doing the tempting? Why can't we just, you know, control ourselves? Um, So I started thinking about where that came from. And there's a very famous Nigerian Nollywood movie called Nneka the Pretty Serpent, which is, you can guess from the title, right? It's Nneka the Pretty Serpent. It's about a woman who goes around tempting men, um, stealing their souls. And um, I kind of based the character of Noma on Nneka, right? Even the names, there's a bit of um, similarity there. and But I wanted to make her the protagonist of the story, as opposed to just being the object that goes around mindlessly killing men and stealing their souls for no reason like what if she's just trying to survive what if that's who she is so that's where the succubus norma came from is um my research into jewish mysticism but also very much nigerian moralistic messaging about tempting women and then i started thinking well i have a nightmare god whose job it is to kill people in their sleep at night and i have a succubus who basically goes around sleeping with people and stealing their souls at night. And it'd be funny if they somehow met each other. So I had written one story with um, Norma and then I was writing a story with Shigidi, a separate standalone story. And I just thought, of course, it makes sense. They would meet each other. So I put them together and wrote the novelette called um, I Shigidi, where basically it part of the novel, like the middle part of the novel actually kind of retells that story a bit about their first encounter. And then I, I liked these characters so much, so I was you know toying with the idea of doing another story about what they do now that they've met each other. And I wasn't sure exactly what that story would be until 2018, when I went to London for the Cain Prize um, ceremony, because I was nominated. And as one of the activities we did while we were in London was go to the British Museum. Now, I had been to the British Museum before because I used to live in London um, back in 2010 till about 2012, um, but I'd never really paid much attention to the museum. I had visited, but I hadn't really looked around. I was I was a student then. It was a different, different situation. But now going as a working person, a bit more thoughtful, a bit more focused, I felt extremely uncomfortable in the museum. And I was wondering why that was. And eventually it just came to me it's because most of the things there don't belong there or they don't have any moral authority to be there right they're not there with the acknowledgement or permission of the cultures and the people to whom those things hold the the greatest value they were basically most of them were taken stolen um, forcefully looted after many punitive expeditions and um, colonial expressions so it made me feel extremely uncomfortable. As much as I love museums, I was very uncomfortable being there. And I just had this overwhelming feeling like, I, sh- I wish I could just take back some of this stuff with me and go give it back to the people to whom it belongs. And that feeling eventually became the novel. I knew I was going to write a story about going to the British Museum and taking things back. And then eventually I was like, wait, why not just let Noma and Shigidi do it? Right? Because I already wanted to write a story about them. And so that was the third piece of the puzzle. So it was, okay, so I have my next adventure with Noma and Shigidi, and they're going to take stuff from the British Museum. But I wanted to also dig deeper into their backgrounds, um, fill out some of their backstory, where they come from, their motivations, um, especially Noma's who, if you read it, you read her at the surface level, it's easy to misinterpret what she is. So That's why I think I spent quite a bit of the novel giving her more and more backstory. Um And yeah, that's basically where the novel came from, was just those three ideas kind of converging to one point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Noma and Shigiri are such interesting sort of foils for each other as well, because they both are kind of, I guess, almost like middling gods, right? Like they're very powerful immortals, but in the structures they exist in, they are not necessarily looking at having a lot of power or a lot of options, And Noma is very confident in sort of her identity and critical of the systems that would sideline her or disparage her, whereas Shigeti has a much more negative relationship to certainly the work he's been doing and the systems he's been in, which have been like exploitative and bad, but also is like very much sort of recentering and reshifting his relationship to power and all of that stuff. And a lot of that happening through his relationship with Noma in a way that I think is just so interesting and compelling.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things I wanted to do. I was thinking of, you know, um, for someone that has been for centuries or essentially since they were created, the entire job role was be ugly, give people nightmares. What would that do to your sense, sense of self-esteem? What would that do to your sense of place in the world of who you are? Um, Despite, you know, I plant some seeds in the book to kind of allude to the fact that Shigidi is much more than what he appears to be. Um, And you kind of see flashes of that through the book as he goes along and develops, you know, kind of realizing what he's capable of doing. But in his personality is just one of someone that has been created to be downtrodden. So he drinks himself to forget, you know, drinks himself blind to forget his situation Whereas Noma is someone that is that has been operating independently and seems very confident in herself, but there are personal things that she's dealing with, and she's also kind of hiding away even if she's not drinking. So they kind of mirror themselves in that way, like you mentioned. Um, they're both caught in the middle of these bigger, larger power structures, like most of us are, to be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Um, One seems confident and one is not confident at all, but they're both, in a sense, coming into a greater knowledge of themselves by meeting each other. And that's what I was trying to capture through the book. As they evolve with each other, you see them grow a bit and change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, As you sort of mentioned, the structure of the novel is very much centered around this heist happening at the British Museum, that kind of is the bookend, but also the novel itself spans in some cases like thousands of years, jumps around a whole bunch of places, and is in many ways very fragmented and also is taking place in like a very contemporary time, right? The majority of the novel is happening in 2017. Could you talk a little bit about the structure of the novel and the decision to set it in like such a contemporary time and 2017 versus like 2020, for example?
1: Right. Well, so Basically, that decision was made because when I wrote the novelette that forms like the centerpiece um, of the novel, when Shigidi and Noma meet, I had already dated it uh, <laughs> to 2017, actually, 2016 when they meet. So the next part would be immediately after that, or not much more than a year after that. So that kind of constrained the forward time period, right? It couldn't have been much more than 2017. And also, I, I didn't want to jump too far forward, because then I would have to change quite a few things to factor in how the world would have changed, the power dynamics of the world would have changed with the pandemic um, during that time, because I was finishing it up in 2020, 2021. So I just decided to keep it with the original time frame that I had established in the novelette. And then we mostly go back. And the reason why we go back, as I said, was mostly to fill out some of the backstory, but also to give a sense, of, um, a sense of there being more to these characters than regular people, right? A sense of scope to the book that matches the abilities of the characters. Because when you have these characters that we say have been around for a long time, um, centuries and so on, it's one thing to say it and then place them in contemporary time it's another thing to actually go back and see what it would have been like. So I wanted to have some scenes go back, you know, about a century and even more than that. There's a chapter of the book that takes place outside of space and time. Um, So I wanted to have that element to give it a bit more of an epic scope that matches the characters that we're dealing with. Um, Now, in terms of having it structured non-linearly, there were a few reasons for that. One was because I I think I, I tend to think about stories a bit cinematically. So because I love movies. Actually, when I was younger, I wanted to be a film director. So whenever I think about stories, I almost imagine them playing out as a movie. And in my head when I decided I was going to write this as a story, even before I was sure it was a novel, I was thinking it might be a novella. Um, I knew it was going to open with the car chase, kind of like a cold open, a bit like you would get in, say, an action movie. And then you would move around from place to place, almost like it was a bit of a James Bond movie, because you do have these two kind of svelte, beautiful-looking characters going to exotic locations, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, doing cool stuff, stealing. So it has elements of that Ocean's Eleven, James Bond kind of vibe. And that's part of what I wanted to capture while also giving it that scope in time of going back. So those are the two reasons why we have both the the hopping around and the starting at the end and then going back to fill in some of that before coming back to the main main heist plot that closes the book. I also think it makes the story more interesting uh, because when I finished it, I actually experimented with a few different structures for, for the book. Um, I rewrote it chronologically to see, because it, it is a bit f- simpler to read stories that go chronologically. Any story that is, um, any story that doesn't go chrono, that's non-linear, can, it adds an extra layer of challenge for the reader, um, something to pay attention to. And I was trying to see if I could reduce that that burden of, um of following but it completely took the it took the air out of the story because what i I think what I subconsciously did while I was writing was not just give scope but also each chapter kind of leads into the next one even though they are set sometimes centuries apart and in very different locations but they kind of you you get certain information, that is relevant to the chapter immediately following. So it's something that frames an emotional decision, or it's something that introduces a character into the heist plot so that when you see them in that heist plot, you understand the dynamic they have with Shigidi and all these other characters before we continue on with the heist plot. So changing it to make it chronological, just it puts too much of a distance between scenes that emotionally felt like they were close to each other, even though they were chronologically separate. Um, so I just put it back together this way. And I'm really glad most, most readers and reviewers have enjoyed it that way, which I guess validates that decision. Not everyone has loved it, um, but I think the vast majority have.
0: Well, and I think that so many heist stories are told out of order, at least a little bit. Um, and oftentimes that's focused on logistics. And I'd love to talk more about the experience of writing a heist novel generally. But this story in particular, I think, is also so concerned with like, the interpersonal implications of the heist it's not just that we want to know the logistics and the magic although all of that is like cool and definitely important but also understanding like how these characters come to this moment why do they feel the way that they do what are the stakes for them both interpersonally and individually in a way that felt to me very unique and very engaging so i think the structure works really well in that way too i was wondering I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about heist stories and like writing this as a heist. You said that that was very much like the plot idea going in. So, what were sort of your thoughts around that as you were constructing this?
1: Um, I'm like I said, I, I love movies. Um, I wanted to be a film director myself, so I have seen pretty much all of the classic heist um, stories. You know, the thief. Um, heat oceans 11 all the other all the other oceans um and I, I did have a sense of what I thought made a good heist story basically interesting characters, lots of logistics things go wrong problem solving to find their way out and also engaging challenges for them to overcome So that part was at the back of my mind but sometimes I describe well, not just me, I have actually seen other reviewers use the term literary heist novel, um, which I think kind of captures what you were saying, that I tried to write a literary heist novel, which is very much focused on the inner lives of the characters, as well as balancing that with the heist story itself. So for, I understand, you know, some readers come into a heist story expecting all action all the time, go, go, go. It's all logistics. It's all challenges. And I think I try to balance, like, half of the novel is that, but the other half is building up to why these elements matter to these characters, to these gods. Um, What are the interpersonal relationships? What are the stakes? And for me, that's always because as much as I, as much as I love heist novels and, movies especially a lot of the time when you finish watching or reading them the main thing you get a sense of is fun right like something fun happened but it's very rare that someone remembers why the main character was trying to steal the thing right what was the emotional core Um, very few people you know i've spoken to years later can tell you what exactly did you know danny ocean gain from the first Ocean's Eleven movie, like what? What? Why? Why were they so? Why were they working so hard to, to try to pull off that heist? Most people don't remember. They just remember. Oh, there was the cool Chinese dude that did the thing with the trick, and there was this guy that talked really fast, and I liked the way he bantered with Brad Pitt. But why were they doing it? Most people forget. So I didn't want that to happen with this story. I wanted the characters to be memorable, um, as well as what actually happens during the heist. So. The way I came at it was I basically rewatched a lot of my favorite heist movies, gave myself like a refresher on the sense of what makes an interesting heist story. And then I stopped. And then I said, I have my idea for what I want to write. I'm going to keep as much of a sensibility of a heist story as I can, but I'm still focusing largely on the characters. And that's how I came at the story, Um, which is probably why you Whenever I talk to people, you know, most of the time people have been saying things like, oh, you know, Noma was an entertaining character or I really liked Shigeti's character. And a few people say, well, you know, the heist was cool and it was nice to see someone taking something from British Museum. But I like that that most of the time people reference the characters. And I think that kind of is what that was going for.
0: Absolutely. A central part of kind of their internal lives in this novel as well is essentially the romance between Shigedi and Noma which is that relationship generally obviously hugely central and also just in this very interesting place where Shigedi has like committed himself essentially to Noma and is trying to get that same level of commitment back from her and that is sort of the place in the relationship that the novel occurs in and we also know from like the very first page it like opens with her saying that she loved him so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the romance and in particular choosing to center things on this very particular space in a relationship.
1: Yeah. Um, so I chose to, to kind of make that the starting point of their relationship because when I had written the novelette, um that kind of set me off on this path to the novel, they had just met and they had recognized something in each other, right? Something kind of deeply profound. I wouldn't say love at first sight because they have a weird, complicated relationship. It's not simple or human and their behaviors are not, their morals and their sense of um, emotional balancing is not the same as what you get for humans, right? Which again, you expect for immortals. They don't behave like people, Um, but it's almost like a love at first um, nightmare situation And it's a bit of a forced, almost a forced encounter, like a forced meet-cute where they're in a difficult position and they both negotiate, but at the same time, they kind of like each other, but not quite. And then they agree to this thing, and there is a sexual encounter, and they eventually agree to be partners. And I was imagining that, to me, that's almost the same kind of, conceptually the same as what would happen if you met an interesting stranger at a bar right? Someone that you vibed with, but maybe there was a bit of tension and you kind of liked each other and you just went home on the first date and had sex, but you feel something deeper than that. You're just not sure what it is. And then you wake up the next morning and you're like, oh, so what do we do now? I guess we're together now. And that's the space that, you know, conceptually their relationship was in to me where they had agreed to this thing um, to be together with each other but they were not sure exactly what it was. Um, Noma has these deeper feelings and needs for a partner that she's not fully acknowledging. And Shigidi is almost desperate for any kind of love because his entire life has been, he's been deprived of it. So he jumps at the first thing that looks like that. And that's the weird space that they're in. And then they now have to live with each other. That's the way I was trying to picture it. It's, you meet an interesting stranger at the bar, you go off, you do this thing, you wake up the next morning and like, well, what now? And we have to keep going on and on and on. Um, so I, I thought that gave their relationship an interesting dynamic that I could play with, um, especially when you bring in external characters. For example, um, Alistair Crowley makes an appearance in the novel as kind of uh, an old romantic interest also a bit more complicated. But um, when you place him in the middle of that space, then it triggers other emotions like jealousy um, or even just remembering how things could be without the partner and forcing them to try to evaluate whether they actually want to be in the relationship they've chosen. Um, so that that was one of the things I wanted to do with that was have a relationship with a bit of tension and um, uncertainty and as we go through the story we see where that comes from but also eventually where it goes and what it can lead to
0: well and i think that relationship is so humanizing is maybe the wrong word because they're neither of them are humans but is definitely like a very grounding and like sympathetic element of the story because you really understand where both of them are coming from and that feels important to me in part because like they aren't humans and they're quite sympathetic, but they're also, like, out here eating people pretty regularly. And sometimes they feel bad about it, but most of the time they really don't. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the balancing act of, like, walking that line with powerful immortals like this, of, like, the monstrous and the sympathetic. Like, how do you make us root for someone that if we encounter them in an alley might just, like, eat our soul and be like, that was brunch and keep going?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... That was a that was a tricky that was a tricky balance to pull off. I think, um, and it's something I kept, you know, oscillating backwards and forwards. So how much, um, how much do I want to tweak their moral compass from where a typical human expectation of the hero, hero's moral compass would be? Because I I wanted to stay true to their sources, their source materials. Noma comes from, you know. Supernatural imaginings of a succubus, which is a traditional evil character. And even though she's more complicated than that, at heart, she derives her power from having sex with people and stealing their souls. And I was not going to back off from that or t- tone it down. So the novel is quite erotic as well, because if you have a succubus, you're, all, you're either all the way in or you're all the way out, right? Like either you're doing the succubus or you're not. Um, and the same with Shigidi, who is a nightmare god, who in traditional Yoruba belief, one of his tasks is to literally kill people, right? Is to sit on people's chests until they can't breathe and then kill them while they have nightmares. Um, so I wasn't going to back away from that. So I needed to have that. But at the same time, I knew if I just kept it simple, surface level, nightmare God killing people, succubus stealing souls and killing people, there is nothing for a reader to be interested in. And the thing that pulled me to these characters, as I mentioned, for both of them, was I came at them with a bit of sympathy. I kept thinking, this must be the worst job in the world. And also for Nomer's like, why is this woman always presented as this evil temptress with no other purpose except to corrupt men? There must be more to them. And it's that my own my own interest in sympathizing with them is what I carried over into the book and try to give a sense of people that do things not because they want to and not because they hate it, but more to the sense that they're ambivalent about it. It's just a requirement of who they are. It is part of what they've been created to be, in Shigidi's case, very explicitly, right? Which is why he's the one that um, is a bit more Shows a bit more remorse and dislike for what he has to do. But for Norma, Norma, it's essentially that is who she is. That's where her power comes from. It's almost like I was trying to imagine how would a human feel about eating food? Right? Mm-hmm. There are some people that feel complicated about, about eating certain things, and some people don't care at all. And Norma is kind of in in the space where to her food is food and she does what she needs to do. But outside of that, she has a more complex inner life in relationships with people, in the way she thinks about her sister, in the way she thinks about Shigidi, in the way she relates to the other gods. And so I wanted as much of that to come through, to give that balance of understanding what they do is something that they approach with a bit of an ambivalent morality, but understanding that once they do those things, they their own um, personal complexities is what, like you mentioned, humanizes them. It's the complexity of their personality as opposed to just what they do. And I've always thought, um, especially when it comes to monstrous creatures, right? Shigidi is a, is a nightmare god and Nomad Succubus, so they're not traditional monsters in that sense, but they are monstrous creatures. And a lot of the time with humans especially. The reason we like characters that, um, when we say we humanize characters, we like that is because they are us, right? All of these creatures and monsters and gods and everything we imagine, all everything we imagine is projected aspects of ourselves. So I wanted to capture that, um, that sense of them being us and them being very much like us while still maintaining their divine, unusual, supernatural sensibility and abilities as well.
0: Well, and there's a lot of ways in which they're sort of like nature is shaping their decisions, right? Like they have to eat human souls essentially to live. But there's also, this novel is very concerned about structures as well. Uh, we've mentioned them a little bit, but the spirit corporations are very important, right? So you have sort of these like mega corporations and the way that they're shaping things and influencing things is really important. And then particularly because Noma has been around for so long and has such like a long sense of history and time and point of view, we also kind of see the ways in which these corporations have developed and the implication of that and the way that they have sort of like fed on and shaped the life of the gods. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of capitalism in this novel and like the way that those corporations shape our protagonist's experiences.
1: Absolutely. Um, very strongly, one of the things I wanted to come across in the book is a kind of exploration of what the natural endpoint of capitalism is. Um, but I wanted to do it in a fun you know, way, right? Using these gods, and there's lots of fight scenes, and adventures, and there's a heist, and all of this stuff. But in the background, I wanted to show a bit some of what the natural end point of that is, which is exploitation and what that exploitation does to people. And a lot of that is embodied in Shigidi's character arc, but also in some of the other gods that are referenced, some of his friends, what they're forced to do, what happens to them when they don't comply. Because if the only objective of operating any kind of system is to generate profit and using profit, capital generates more capital. You will almost always end up with a situation where a small few accumulate as much capital as possible and use that to keep everybody else subservient to them, generating more profit for themselves indefinitely. Right. So you just have a widening wealth gap. And we see this in many countries generally. Once you become hyper-capitalist, you begin to get a widening wealth gap between the rich and the poor. And I wanted to illustrate that in the structure of the Yoruba pantheon, the gods, um, by showing how they had essentially transitioned from a more egalitarian, almost like family-run system, where the older god allows every other god to do their own thing, and they all work together as a group, more of a communitarian approach, to switching in their mind because they needed to compete with other global um, religions for faith and belief once you had globalization so they convert to this more capitalist system which they think is more effective but actually is not even working for them and it's leading to more and more exploitation of the people and that's one of the things that drives Shigidi to want to leave it makes him extremely unhappy in his job And I think even showing some of the gods as well at the higher level and how they interact and all the infighting and petty, um, the petty squabbles that they have and how that influences decisions. That's also a critique of something I've seen in a lot of capitalist discourse where people, people say capitalism has all these dangers, but it's still the most efficient way to generate wealth and value and so on. Um, because people are assumed to be rational actors and things like that. And in reality, the rational actor does not exist economically speaking, right? Most economics make economists make those assumptions that people are rational actors and they will allocate their capital in the most efficient way. But in reality, and as writers and creative people, we know that's not how humans operate. We are not rational actors. We have many things that we care about that have nothing to do with rationality. Um, emotions, history, biases, personal prejudices as personal aspirations that will cause people to act what would seem economically, irrationally. And I wanted to illustrate that, which is why I kind of had that big scene with the board meeting with all the Orishas, and you kind of see all these competing emotions and backgrounds and setups for how they've come to be. And they're all having this meeting trying to decide what to do next. And in all that, you see that it's really just a lot of petty personal squabbles at the end of the day, even though they feel like they're operating more efficiently. Um, So, yeah, the natural exploitation and inefficiency of capitalist systems, I think, is one of the things I wanted to, to really highlight with that, but also to place it side by side with global inequality in terms of power structure, not just economic power but political power in the sense of um, capturing things like one set of gods having less ability to move freely than the other, even though they've made all these trade agreements and you know agreements with other spirit corporations about how they can operate. Yet, if gods from, say, Europe wanted to go to Asia or Africa, they can come in freely, But if the gods from Africa want to go to the UK, for example, they need to declare themselves essentially go through like a visa process, Mm -hmm. um, which just shows that there is an imbalance as well at the global scale with political power. And at the end of the day, I think I actually mentioned it in the book as a quote, at the end of the day, the ultimate law still remains power.
0: Well, and I think that's one of the really powerful things about speculative fiction as well, is it lets us talk about these things like you know essentially like weak passports and the way that corporate structures work and stuff without talking about the thing directly it lets us have the space to be like what does this look like and feel like if it is happening in a pantheon of gods and so it allows us to sort of connect with that but also to create the space for people to sort of look at it without having to look directly at the thing. Um, And also to experiment with the ways in which it might be similar or different that I always just think is, like, as a speculative fiction, like, reader and writer is one of, I think, the most powerful things about science fiction and fantasy,
1: for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always go back to, I think, Samuel R. Delaney put it probably most succinctly when he said, speculative fiction is the literalization of metaphor. And that, I think, is extremely powerful right um because sometimes if you're talking to someone, if I go to someone and tell them a story about passport inequalities and you know the problems with capitalism, they will, they will they might listen and they might understand. but to them because it's so much about their real world and they're bringing they're thinking about their place in that real world and how all of these changes could affect it, people have a lot of inertia right? Resisting changes to the way the world works. We want to believe that that's the way it should work, especially if it's working for us. But if you come at them with a metaphor that highlights just how ridiculous some of these concepts that we take for granted in the real world are, as in the form of a metaphor, like even the gods need to have, you know, visa and immigration processes and declare when they're entering a country, then you start to think, why do we even make people do that? What's the objective? And why do some people have to and some people not? Um, and in asking those questions, it can actually help get past that initial barrier, that inertia that we all have of thinking the way the world works is the way it should work. And then you can you can jump across that um, that fence that people put up in their minds and start to plant the seeds of other ideas. So I, I love it as well. It's just that literalization of metaphor is uh, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this novel does such a great job of that. It is super fun and cinematic and also like very thoughtful and adventurous all in one. Um, And it's a really great read. If you've not picked it up yet, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much, Angela. Good questions. Great questions. And uh, hopefully I will get to talk again at some point. Yeah,
0: here's hoping for sure. I have been speaking with Wole Tulabi about his novel Shiggity and the Brass Head of a Bulafon, out now from DAW. Thank you so much for listening, and please consider feeding the algorithms by subscribing or leaving a review. If you would rather talk to humans in your actual life, that is also always encouraged. I will speak to you soon, and for now, happy reading.